Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everyone welcome back to Podside picnic and welcome back to lovecraft month unfortunately my co-host pete is once again unexpectedly not here i've received a sort of cryptic brief telegram from him the uh i, I think that the investigation of disturbances he's pursuing in massachusetts is going pretty well the telegram was kind of odd but you know pete's got it under control i'm sure um, and in lieu of my co-host, I am here with a dear friend of the pod, a patron of the pod, as <clears throat> we hope you all will be one day, uh, <laughs> and a good buddy of mine from online spaces and a good guy all around. That is Ryan Boyd. Welcome on the show, Ryan. Hey, Connor. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. And I, before I, we go on, I have to say that uh, your credentials here are you are a poet, and a critic and all around writer and man of letters who teaches writing at the University of Southern California out there in um, the degenerate wasteland of Los Angeles. <laughs> um, and but you're also from, you know, you're from the uh, the witch haunted Blue Ridge Mountains. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, I'm sure, uh, just like my family is from the Blue Ridge Mountains. But um, yeah, it's really great having you on. Finally, we've made fun of you a lot on the show. Uh, <laughs> which of course I appreciate yeah, as, as a, as a pain patron, <laughs> yeah, it's what you get, what you pay for. You get paid to, get, to be, to be mocked. No, we, we love, we always do the shout outs to you because we know you'll, you'll take it in good stride because you're, you're a good natured dude. And, um, you know, uh, you've been a supporter of the pod since before we even launched. So like that is, that's some real, you know, that's some extra, extra patron performance there. <laughs> I feel like I've learned a lot from it. I mean, sci-fi is not something I know a lot about. Um, so, you know, I feel like it's, it's been a, a little education. I like it. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that someone who has a PhD in American literature finds our podcast educational. <laughs> well, I mean, really all having a PhD does is it, it teaches you how little, you know, you know, you become a specialist in one little area and then you realize that there's a thousand times more books than you could ever read and things you could ever know about. I, I wish that more people with PhDs had that kind of humility. I find that very admirable. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, I mean, I don't have a PhD, but having spent a fair amount of time in academic spaces, totally with you on that. And this podcast for me is like one step to try to ameliorate some of the things I don't know. But again, it just like all other, all of these expansive learning projects, you just sort of opens up new and wondrous vistas of ignorance. Um, and, uh, you know, we're here to talk about a writer we both really like, H.P. Lovecraft, who's all about striking out into those unknown expanses of knowledge and, and ending up terrified and insane. Um, <laughs> and the story that we, I had you read, um, and I know you have some back, background in Lovecraft, and I'm going to ask you about that, but we asked you to read The Shadow Over Innsmouth, which is, and I guess it, some people pronounce it Innsmouth, but I know. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that. I guess Innsmouth sounds more New England. 
That's more authentically New England. And then I've heard like context where people say it in his mouth and whatever. It, 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 probably either way. But it's um, it's one of his later ones. It's the only story that was published as a standalone book in Lovecraft's lifetime. Um, and in some ways, it's a good like folks, if you're listening to this and you're not already a Lovecraft head, it's a good, a great intro to him because it does touch on the Cthulhu mythos, which is what most people know about him. But it's also um, one of his sort of best structured, most kinetic most action-driven um, stories, like like in terms of just conventional storytelling structure, it's a good it's a good sort of entry point that that won't be as forbidding and, and strange as some of his other work. Um, so I, you know, that's why that's one of the many reasons that I had you read it. Um, but before we even dive into that, I want to ask you, like, what's your background with Lovecraft and kind of what what has he meant to you over time? So I I discovered Lovecraft when I was probably I'd say in like seventh or eighth grade. Um, one of the first grown-up novelist I'd ever really gotten into was Stephen King. And, uh, you know, the public library in my town had all of his books. So I got really into like his classic stuff from the 70s and 80s. And then one day I was at this um, this book fair that my family would go to a couple times a year in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, shout out to the, the Green Ooh. Valley Book Fair. Um, they uh, I, And I found this anthology of, of science fiction and I forget the title. It was something about weird fiction, but it was it was edited by Stephen King and a couple other people. So I bought a copy of it, and it had uh, you know half a dozen H.P. Lovecraft stories, including this novella uh, in full. And I just you know was I guess for lack of a better word bewitched by it. Um, you know I, I didn't have a lot of baggage yet about what constituted serious or you know quality capital L literature. So you know, for a while there, when I was like 12, 13, 14, I, I feel like I read, you know, a good chunk of his, his oeuvre. Um, and I, this is the first time I've come back to him in, you know, almost, you know, two decades now. So, uh, it's, it's weird to come back with kind of the perspective of somebody who's gotten his, you know, literary humanities education and, you know, see it sort of with different So you're eyes. saying that this reading of Shadow Over Innsmouth was your first reading of Lovecraft in almost 20 years? Yeah, yeah. I um, I had a, you know, nice Penguin Classics edition of his work that I'd found a few years ago, but I hadn't cracked it open yet. Um, so yeah, this was uh, this was coming back to old territory. Interesting. For so for, I want to get all of your impressions there. First, I want to tell our listeners that if you haven't read Shadow Over Innsmouth, you should you should do so. I think it's available for free online. His works are pretty easy to access, but there's somewhat of a something of a primer. Yes. It's about it's was written in the early 30s and I believe is set right around then. Uh, and it's a student, kind of hilariously at Oberlin, uh, home of liberal woke cancel <laughs> right. culture, um, who uh, is um, striking out on a sort of like tour, a sort of semi- research but more just fun tour of new england coastal towns and he's going to the fictional town of arkham that um lovecraft invented and along the way he gets sort of detoured into this town of innsmouth which is everyone from the surrounding area is very wary of innsmouth they talk about the innsmouth look and they're very like disdainful and fearful of this town because it's like it's it's sort of dilapidated and collapsed industrially. It's like a great from the thirties. It's like a great look forward towards like deindustrialization. Uh, and it's you know there's a lot going on there. The more than meets the eye, and there's connections to the Cthulhu mythos and lots of supernatural and cultic activity. And of course, it it's ultimately very very terrifying and gross as Lovecraft tends to be. Um, 
but yeah, it starts off just as a story about like getting waylaid in this, you know, sort of creepy, uh, disdained little town on the Massachusetts coast and kind of rolls from there. Um, so Ryan, now that you told us that you haven't gone back to Lovecraft in years. So, I mean, yeah, like as someone who teaches writing and literature as a career, as someone who does a lot of book reviewing as part of your career, uh, and someone who practices, you know, the actual craft of literature as a poet, like what did you make of all this after coming back to it, you know, and, and having all this new context? Uh, I mean, the, the weird thing about Lovecraft is that I don't think anyone would ever mistake him for like, you know, a, a Flaubert level stylist, <laughs> um, you know, in terms of like how he writes sentences and describes things and, you know, his dialogue can be kind of wooden sometimes. Um, but there's something about the way he, he does the work of a fiction writer, which is to build a world that is so dense and so compelling and so weird, but real feeling that, you know, I, I feel like when you talk about his quality as a, you know, I guess if you want to call him a literary writer, you know, whatever that means, um, you kind of have to separate out his prose style from everything else he does because he, it kept reminding me of Edgar Allan Poe, you know, another guy who's maybe not the best stylist in the world and yet remains, you know, super compelling. Um, so I feel like he's, I guess I would call him like a great bad writer. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Um, would be my snap judgment. Just having read a few I mean, stories. I, I actually, I totally get where you're coming from with that. I'm going to hit you with a counter theory though, that I'm kind of developing. Um, okay. I was, hit I was sort of thinking about, I'm going to do an episode at some point where I just sort of sit down solo and do a close reading of excerpts of Lovecraft and try to understand why I think the prose works and why it's had this enduring effect on people. Because I do think that like, yes, on the one hand, there are reasons that are not necessarily due to the prose that um, his work has endured. Like the Cthulhu mythos is sort of compelling in, in its, and it was sort of innovative when he came up with it. And also there's no copyright uh, protection on his work. Like there's no, I guess he didn't have any heirs. So his estate like doesn't really exist. And therefore like it's, it's open season. So there's lots of reasons why his, his work has entered the broader culture. But um, I think that at the level of prose, there is something there to be discovered. Uh, and I think that often there are lots of passages in Lovecraft that are easy to indict. And I think often, um, again, I'll get to this elsewhere, but I think often it's that he doesn't really create characters. So when he's trying, like, they're just types and they're just narrators that pull you through things. And the narrators right. encounter, these, encounter these totally flat types throughout. And so when he's trying to do characterization or talk about the feelings of characters, it's just like, okay, you're just not very good at this. But... But nonetheless, there are certain things that I think he's very good at. Um, and, you know, the, the chief among them being sort of like a certain kind of description that inaugurates you into precisely the macabre, you know, disorienting atmosphere he wants to achieve. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm going to throw out like the old Russian formalist Shklovsky idea of defamiliarization. <laughs> I think that Lovecraft is a master of old fashioned defamiliarization and that he's sort of like he destabilizes your expectations for the kind of things he's going to describe. And he makes you sort of re-encounter them on his terms. And like I said, elsewhere, I'll explain in more detail what that means. Uh, I think Ryan, though, you have a background in this. So you kind of, you kind mm -hmm. of get what I mean, you know, do you think yeah. that's a, it's a fair theory to have? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would say, I guess like what is really striking about his prose style is the, is the density of it. Um, the, you know, the way he kind of piles up adjectives and clauses and, you know, arguably, you know, depending on taste, you know, tells you more than he needs to about, you know, how someone's feeling or what they're thinking about or, you know, a scene or whatnot. 
Um, but yeah, it's, th- there's something about the world building that comes from the density of the prose that unsettles you and makes you uh, feel this sense of kind of ambient dread um, in, in a way that very few novelists, you know, even sort of serious novelists accomplish. Um, you know, it's reading Lovecraft is like a physical experience in some ways. Yeah. And I think this is a good opportunity. If you don't mind, I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from this story. Oh, um, go for it. I've, sort of, I've got it open in front of me. Great. I'm on in my edition. Let's see. It's about how many pages am I into the story here? Um, do, 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 this this is good radio. Yeah. <laughs> us, us, us flipping through pages. I mean, we do this a lot on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about like 11 or 12 pages in on my edition, but it's a pretty big edition. So it's, it's okay. the part where he's, he's getting on the bus. Okay. And he's yeah. arriving in the town. So this is how he describes this narrator describes encountering the town of Innsmouth. Um, here and there, the ruins of wharves jutted out from the shore to end an in indeterminate rottenness. Those far the south seeming the most decayed. And far out at sea, despite a high tide, I glimpsed a long black line scarcely rising above the water, yet carrying a suggestion of odd latent malignancy. This, I knew, must be Devil Reef. As I looked, a subtle, curious sense of beckoning seemed superadded to the grim repulsion, and oddly enough, I found this overtone more disturbing than the primary impression. We met no one on the road, but presently began to pass deserted farms in varying stages of ruin. Then I noticed a few inhabited houses with rags stuffed in the broken windows and shells and dead fish lying about the littered yards. Once or twice, I saw listless-looking people working in barren gardens or digging clams on the fishy-smelling beach below, and groups of dirty, simian-visaged children playing around weed-grown doorsteps. Somehow these people seemed more disquieting than the dismal buildings, for almost everyone had certain peculiarities of face and motions which I instinctively disliked without being able to define or comprehend them. For a second, I thought this typical physique suggested some picture I had seen, perhaps in a book, under circumstances of particular horror or melancholy. But this pseudo-recollection passed very quickly. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it kind of goes on like that. And I think that, like, mm-hmm. there's a few things. I mean, you're a writing teacher. You teach, you know, like, 19-year-olds how to do <laughs> better, um, better kinds of writing broadly, especially for the sake of argumentation. And, like, you know, I think that, we're both trained in ways that would make us, if, if we were asked to edit those paragraphs, we'd be pulling out modifiers left and right. Right. And we'd be trying to make him make it more direct and more tangible in different ways. But like, yes, yeah, so, I mean, you can impugn the overuse of adjectives, for instance, in Lovecraft and, and also the archaic word choice, like if you want. But there's also a different sense in which like, on the one hand, he's he's building up this narrator. He usually has first person narrators and he's building up this um sense of how the narrator apprehends things in this very like uh stiltedly scholarly way in a way that's like sort of like repulsed in by everything in, in ways that are sometimes they're somewhat tangible but sort of tease you about like not just the intangible but the incomprehensible lurking beyond and there's always that sense of like i'm gonna over describe and then say that i can't describe which is a really interesting rhetorical move and one that I think is probably discouraged in almost every kind of writing in a, in a, in a conventional sense. But I think that Lovecraft, like there's something about the way he wants to push description and then pushes it farther than he thinks it can go. That for me works. It doesn't work in a way that I would like advise undergrad creative writing students to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. But there is something there, I think, honestly. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, we, I think we had talked about this, uh, kind of off, uh, off the record about, uh, how it's kind of an encounter with the sublime 
um, in the sense that you you repeatedly have narrators who encounter things that their sort of structures for understanding the world kind of can't account for. Um, and I feel like, yeah, like part of the, the density of the prose is is building up that sense of an, of an encounter with something bigger or less rational than kind of post-enlightenment ways of looking at the world would be able to make sense of, um, you know. Right. And his characters are always like strongly enlightenment in the sense that they're like educated men of science. Right. Yeah. I mean, the narrator's a, he's an antiquarian, you know, he just wants to learn about new England. You know, he kind of comes with that amateur anthropological, uh, viewpoint that's constantly being challenged by the, the slowly revealed fact that in Lovecraft's world, just below the surface of civilization, there's this madness and irrationality and decay and, you know, things that are deeper and older than civilization. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the sublime. I think this story really masterfully stages the sublime in a really formal way, because what it does is like it, it very exhaustively and dramatically, um, brings you into this character's repulsion with what he's encountering, uh, sort of unfolding the reality of what happens in Innsmouth. And then it pushes beyond that to sort of make, make that what is initially repulsive, uh, like seductive and drawing you in as it draws the character in. And that's sort of like the great like, yeah. massive, massive turn at the end. Cause the story could have been really great without sort of where it goes at the end, which I won't fully spoil, but the point is that like, it's, yeah. there's it's, a, a, final, it's a great twist at the end. Yeah. There's the story has, does have a great like twist in, in uh, t- in a traditional dramatic sense. And, um, yeah, I mean, this might this is close to my favorite Lovecraft story, if not my favorite. I think it's I, it's the one I would most recommend among the longer ones for like first time readers. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, I mean, where does like I, I guess I'll ask you on that note, like you know, what did you what did you make of this one going back to it, and like what are some of your other favorite Lovecraft stories? Um, I mean, I would say this is this is the one that I, I hadn't you know, like I said, I hadn't read it in two decades and it it immediately came back as soon as I got into the opening pages. So I I would say this is probably my favorite Lovecraft. Um, You know, I really like uh, the color out of space, which I know, have you released the episode you guys did with uh, Leslie? I think probably Uh, next week. Yeah. We have Leslie Lee. Um, We, and he he knows a lot. Sorry. I don't want to spoil it. Oh no, you're fine. Like (laughs) it's good. It's good to do teasers. So yeah, Leslie Lee came on and we had a great conversation about color out of space. Yeah. Yeah. That, and then um, you know, it's, probably the best known one, but the, the, the call of Cthulhu, um, you know, where you have a similar narrative setup where you have this kind of independent amateur investigator uncovering these horrifying depths, uh, you know, about the deep ones and the sort of hidden reality of the world. Um, but this is definitely my favorite, uh, Lovecraft, I would say. I mean, I, like you were saying earlier, there's something just so kinetic and cinematic about it. It, it moves, more fluidly than a lot of his stories do, um, you know, because he is so concerned with exposition um, that this one has such a great pace to it that, you know, it feels like in a lot of ways, the most, um, I guess like the most accomplished thing he ever wrote. Yeah. He actually manages to dramatize the exposition, which is something he almost never does. There's always like, right. There's usually like a, just a density of exposition. It's either like you're reading a letter 
um, or it's just being flatly told to you. In this case, like this guy has to get key information out of a drunk local drunk that he has to apply with moonshine. <laughs> Zardok. Zadok Allen. And like, you know, <laughs> this guy, like there's a turn at the end of the conversation and that's when the real drama of the story starts happening. So it's like Lovecraft. This was Lovecraft after going to the movies, uh, quite a, quite a bit, right. <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, do you know much about his relationship with like early film? I, I don't. You know, you're catching me flat-footed, and I, I that's yeah. something that I wish I knew more about. I'm realizing that as Lovecraft months goes on, I really, if I had more time, I should have read like a full biography of him. I'm not sure. Yeah. I do think he, I think he liked going to the movies, but someone's going to catch me out and tell me that I'm wrong about that uh, or not. I don't know. I actually let, let me look it up. Um, go ahead and go ahead and, and give us some of your some of your thoughts, Ryan. As I <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, one of the things we, we had sort of planned on talking about was, um, this concept of cultural and biological degeneration and decay that kind of runs throughout Lovecraft's writing. You know, it's especially on display here with this idea that the, the residents of Innsmouth, you know, physically have the Innsmouth look where they've, they've sort of become, less than human, uh, in the way their faces and bodies look. And there's even a point where, um, where the narrator's talking to the guy at the store before he, before he gets on the bus to go to Innsmouth. And I'm trying to find the passage now. Um, yeah, the, this is where the, um, the guy he's talking to before he goes to Innsmouth says, uh, I'll just read this here. Um, speaking of the people from Innsmouth, I guess they're what you call, or what they call, white trash down south, lawless and sly and full of secret doings. Um, and it's kind of interesting that that discourse of the, the idea of sort of a degenerate white race um, gets taken from a place that it's often located in literature, which is, you know, the, the deep south and brought up to New England. Um, and, I, and that seems like that's something that, you know, I know people often get in debates about, you know, how xenophobic or racist is is Lovecraft's conception of otherness and, you know, the exotic. Um, but it's really interesting that here it's, it's, it's Americanized and made to seem almost, a, you know, kind of a naturalized element of, of American life. Yeah. I, and I think that's, this is, I, you know, I haven't like gone through and indexed every use of white trash, the phrase in what yeah. Lovecraft's work. I don't think it comes up very often, if at all, outside of this. So no, that really struck the, that's me. The only, it's the only place in this story that it comes up. And it's, you know, it's not even the narrator saying it. Right. And it, it's, it's so striking when you see it because like Lovecraft on the one hand is carries so many bigotries, um, racism, xenophobia, and classism being the, the primary ones. Um, this is where I'll do an aside and say that one of the reasons that those are the primary ones is women like barely exist in Lovecraft. Like they almost never yes. even like get on stage. There is like a female librarian, which is like in this story, which is striking because again, he like never gives speaking roles to women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, he just yeah. was not, you know, it's hard to even call him misogynist. It's just like, he wasn't interested in them in, in a narrative sense. Um, but you know, so to go back to the, the white trash thing, like, What's striking about it is, on the one hand, he carried all those bigotries, and that, there's been so much discussion and dissection of that. But on the other hand, like it's usually it's usually framed in ways that were archaic, even in like the 30s when he was writing. And it's so it's often it's often buried in language that, that's trying to like harken back, you know, and aspiring to like the 1850s or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this case, he's hitting us with a. I mean, white trash is a phrase with old provenance, but I think it's it's a it's certainly a relatively 
modern phrase that is obviously still very much in use uh, today. Um, and we all know immediately what it means. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that we know what it means that like it steps out of this archaic world of Lovecraft and immediately it, it means something to us that like talking about degeneracy doesn't mean or like, you know, crossbreeding between races, which are other, other phrases that he uses elsewhere. Like those those are sort of like museum pieces of bigotry, whereas white trash is like a very live sort of charged um, bigoted term in the 21st mm-hmm. century. Yeah. And he even, you know, on the page, it's, it's in quotation marks. Um, when the guy says it, you know, it's, it's very much tal- er, uh, underscored as, you know, a, a term, uh, that you're supposed to, I guess, momentarily pay attention to and use to frame a lot of what you subsequently learn. Right. And like, I think what's interesting is that again, that the story starts off and it's just a classic, ex- like it, it starts off as arguably like the strongest and clearest example of like, his class bigotry in particular, because we're not talking about, he, you know, he's always um, dissing immigrants. So there's the clear xenophobia, often white immigrants, mm-hmm. but it's, so it's, so it's, you know, xenophobia rather than racism. And then there's a lot of racism in Lovecraft. But in this case, it's neither of those. It's actually about the degeneracy and sort of the failing of this wasp group of people in this Massachusetts mm-hmm. town. So they have like degraded beyond what they're supposed to be as good, I think there's mentions of like good stock, you know, like yeah. gentle, some gentle bread families and they've all gone to the dogs or to the fishes as it turns out. But, um, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's really about like, it's not about that they are inherently lesser as others based on like how they were born. It's that they're, they have chosen to, to degenerate and they're actively participating in their own degeneracy. So it's like, he's displaying his disdain for people who are much like him and have made, questionable choices but then by the end you know as the story sort of makes its various turns by the end it's like it it starts to sort of tease the sense that like maybe they're not degenerating at all maybe they're actually they're actually doing something like if not it's not exactly laudable in the bounds of the story but like something sort of darkly transcendent you know yeah yeah because you know one of the things that the um the degeneracy kind of coincides with is that they they've developed this very um fruitful rural economy based on fishing and sort of like sacrifices made to various dark gods from under the sea. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that, that I kept noticing when I read this is that it's a story about a town that is kind of deindustrialized and been left behind by the modern economy. I mean, it used to be a shipping center and now it's not anymore. There was some manufacturing and now there's just a, a creepy gold refinery that maybe we can talk about. Um, but it's a, it's a place that's been like clearly sort of carved out of a modern economy and given over to something else. And it's unclear, you know, how, how much, you know, there's almost a sense of like mourning to it um, in Lovecraft. Like, even though the narrator is, you know, means us to be disgusted by what we see. Um, I always got this sense of sort of sadness about something that's just been, you know, left behind. Yeah, I think that's very true. And, and like, we're, we're told, like, you know, we're, we're meant to be repulsed by the choices that the Innsmouthers, Innsmouthers, whatever, have made. Um, but we're also told at length that, like, they sort of resisted this transformation that they made it initially as, like, they made this discovery of groups they could trade with uh, right. in the quote-unquote South Seas. And that these tribes sort of slowly, like, you know, inaugurated them into their you know, diabolical practices that led to this mm-hmm. current state. 
Um, but again, it's like the, all along that, tri- it was like a series of economic crises. It was desperation. And then like the various movements that were made caused these local crises and there was resistance. So it's like, you know, there's a very like tangible progression of like, rather than just sort of like this, this hovering malignancy that's at first suggested, it's like, no, this was a series of expedient choices that were made by people in a town that has been abandoned, not only abandoned, but like, you know, maligned and cut off. Mm-hmm. by neighboring communities, by the rest of the world. And no one was coming to save them. They had to do something themselves, right? Right. And it's it's interesting. I mean, it, this isn't the only Lovecraft story where the framing for the narrative involves the role of the state and the government. Um, because, you know, we find out at the, at the very beginning of, uh, of the story that um, the narrator has had contact with the federal government and federal investigators who've kind of come in and, and try to like contain the, the situation in Innsmouth. Um, but that's really the only time you, you see a sense of like a larger state uh, being involved in sort of the fate of the people here um, kind of as like a police force that has to come in and mop things up. Yeah, exactly. So like the state reasserts itself, but only in the most violent, um, <laughs> destructive way. And it's of course passed off as like, well, how is it plausible that like the government would come in and like dynamite a bunch of buildings and fire off torpedoes? It's like, Oh, it must've been about something about liquor and prohibition. Cause you know, right. They, they literally send a submarine to shoot a torpedo at, at the deep ones. Yeah. Um, <laughs> off of devil's reef. Um, right. Yeah. I always, that's something I always, it's kind of, you kind of have to suspend disbelief that, you know, the narrator has this experience and then he goes and tells government officials in, in Boston about what happened. And they just apparently were like, yeah, we believe you. Um, <laughs> we'll go take care of that. Right. Well, what, I agree with a bunch of disbelief, but also like where it's made believable is that like everyone hates this town and thinks it's full of these low, awful people. So like there's no yeah, the neighboring towns and the whole region. they're not going to ask too many questions if you go in there and like, you know, put the, it, it's, it, it's similar to like, you could you could make it analogous to like if you have like some massive police action during a riot and the National Guard is called out and it's all taking place in, you know, the bad part of the met- the, the quote unquote bad part of the metro area. Like mm-hmm. all kinds of things can happen. And, um, you know, all kinds of injustices are going to be committed by the state and with a state sanction. And then at the end, we're just going to say, well, that's just what happens when uh, shit goes down in the bad part of town. Right. Yeah. Um, and so Innsmouth is no different from that. And I feel like now I've talked myself into a situation where the, uh, the Innsmouthers were doing the right thing. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not quite prepared to get there. I mean, again, it's like it's within the bounds of the supernatural story. But I do think that Lovecraft makes interesting moves where he starts off with his like, you know, the narrator being a vehicle as usual for his 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 various prejudices and then sort of slowly unfurls this drama in which we sort of we begin to understand on, diff- on many different levels, why this all took place. And we begin to see the Innsmouthers um, as perhaps not necessarily righteous or heroic, but as like as people that are, you know, they're participating in a, in a bigger plan that is um, sort of has its own role in the history of his mythos. And they're they certainly have done an impressive job coping with the sort of mundane but catastrophic crises they faced as a community. I think that's all fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that's so interesting about the story is the attention that Lovecraft's narrator pays to the kind of um, aesthetic and like cultural rituals that are that are part of the mythos. Like there's so much focus on the um, 
the like the tiaras worn by the priests of Dagon in Innsmouth and the narrator kind of having these uncomfortable moments where he looks at art that's been created uh, as part of this religious cult and and again has this sort of sublime experience of otherness that overwhelms his ability to rationalize things. Um, you know, th- that for me is one of the scariest things about the story is the description of the kind of rights that have been developed that he just kind of glimpses here and there. Um, you know, ag- again, this, this idea that like just below the surface of the rational modern world, there are these, these things that, you know, defy our ability to conceptualize them. Right. And this is a story that, that more than almost any of the other ones that I can remember does a really good job, um, depicting the beauty of the, the sort of like terrifying alien culture that's being brought here. As I said, there's so much talk about the museum pieces and how, how impressive they are. Um, and be how beautiful and, and bewitching they are. And also like, there's a lot of great irony that probably didn't, that I don't know how intentional this is. And, and if it registered would have registered for readers at the time, but there is a great line pretty early on where he says, um, I'll just quote the structure's once white paint was now gray and peeling and the black and gold sign on the pediment was so faded that I could only with difficulty make out the words esoteric order of Dagon. <laughs> this yeah. then was the former Masonic hall now given over to a degraded cult. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the irony there being like, it's the, it's the Freemasons lodge, which is already like a, you know, a somewhat cultic, certainly uh, exclusive secret society and it's like, oh, the Freemasons, you know, the, the the goodly Freemasons have been replaced by a dangerous secret secret cult. Ha ha ha! Like it's, um, there's there's yeah. definitely a sort of like a layered mockery and ironization of uh, of the existing prevailing orders that have been usurped by something else in Innsmouth. Yeah, I mean, like so much attention is paid to um, kind of the physical decay of the of the churches, also in Innsmouth, um, the way they've been you know, again, given over to this, this sort of like, you know, humanoid race of, of locals. Um, and it's become something so much different than its original purpose. But, you know, I always wonder, yeah, like what, what Lovecraft seems to be saying about the old ways of making religious sense of the world, because it doesn't seem like he's really, you know, endorsing, you know, the age of Christianity either. Um, that's something I always notice. There's so much attention paid to the, the the falling steeples and the architecture of the churches that are left. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about that is like there's, as you said, there's so much careful description of how this town has fallen apart. Um, and part of that is again that it's it's sort of a a presaging or prophetic story about deindustrialization, which I guess you know mm-hmm. certainly has been a process that's been happening ever since industrialization happened. But now reading this in 2019, this story that was set in the late 20s or early 30s, you can now read it and you're like, yeah, like maybe not every deindustrialized town has an esoteric supernatural cult functioning in it, but like they all, right. you know, this is this is nonetheless very recognizable and sort of hollowed out communities that we've all probably passed through or, yeah. or live or are from, um, you know, depending on where you're from. But it and also, like, what's interesting about it partly is that there's a suggestion that not only is there this whole thing going on in the reef near, you know, just off the coast of this town, there's a lot going on out there, but also there's, like, almost a secret city of tunnels that is, like, mm-hmm. there's something really interesting that's been sort of rebuilt or renewed underneath this surface of, de- the surface of decay doesn't really tell you anything. Like, there's so much going on beneath the surface that, like, again, you look at it and you're like, okay, you know, this can be right as a parable of, like, all the things that one misreads when one sees surface decay in a community. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of sort of the, the idea of like decay following upon deindustrialization, I think one of the things that, you know, and again, this runs throughout Lovecraft, it's not just this story, but his interest in the way that the kind of, you know, what was he called at one point, like the nightmare contagion is brought from around the world via globalization and empire and sort of world trade routes um, that is sort of, you know, opened up these, these vistas and possibilities for, you know, things falling apart. So again, there's this, this sense that the, you know, Innsmouth is, it's isolated and it's strange and rural, but at the same time, it's part of this, this worldwide and, and more than human network of connections that we've kind of articulated in modernity. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's been very much exposed to both the vicissitudes of empire and globalized trade and that it got, it got wrecked by, you know, one wave of that sort of altering around it and leaving it behind. And then it's, it's come with its own clever adaptation within that. Um, and again, like, I think it would be remiss in, in interpreting this to not, not make it very clear that like, there is, there is a very uh, important string running through this of like, you know, the de- degeneration of the good Innsmouth stock has been in part caused by, you know, interbreeding with what happens to be like, you know, a, a fully alien race, essentially, but an inhuman race, at least. Um, but that's sort of that's they get introduced to that by, um, you know, islanders okay. from the Pacific and that it's sort of it can be read as, as being about a more a more familiar, real kind of um, right. racial uh, intermixing or intermingling, whatever the term they would have used in the 20s would have been. But like, yeah, it can be there, there's like a very traditional kind of racism in that. Um, yeah. I think what's interesting, though, is to say that, again, like the Innsmouthers have agency here and have chosen to sort of restructure their society in a particular way. So um, that reading is not uncomplicated by the reality of the story. But yeah, yeah again, I mean, it is it's it's there is a, a, a very clear sort of xenophobia and racism in that part of the story as well. Um, I just don't think that it fully subsumes all of the meaning of the story, but yeah. And one of the things that you, you hear about, um, so I think it's from, uh, from Zadok's story is, uh, that the other tribes in the South seas who had encountered the, the deep ones and the, and the humans who were sort of bound to them had these, these ancient rites and spells and kind of like magic that was able to control the evil. Whereas once it gets into kind of the quote unquote modern world, all we have is, you know, the FBI and a submarine and things like that. (laughs) Um, There's a sense in which like, you know, sort of modern European technology isn't equipped to deal with this evil the way that, that, you know, again, these, these people from the, you know, the so-called South seas are, um, which complicates it again, because it's, it's almost this gesture of respect. um, Yeah. I mean, there's these people. Yeah, for sure. There's actually like, there's um, an odd kind of, uh, deference in the narrative to like the the folk ways of these these groups that have learned to live with these magical forces and actually there was one uh did you did you catch the moment where they said that like the tribes that attacked and destroyed the tribe that the insmithers were working with they were wielding like the symbols of the old ones which is another another sort of mm-hmm. supernatural or alien group that are opposed to this group the insmithers are working with and uh it's a swastika yeah yeah exactly uh yeah it's it's, it's so weird to read it. You know, I mean, you can read it ahistorically um, and be kind of shocked by it, but yeah, I always forget that, that, you know, the swastika has a much older history than the Nazis. Right. And uh, yeah, this, this came out before like the rise of Nazism in Germany was like what everyone was talking about. Uh, It was, it was a few years prior to that, but yeah, um, 
yeah, it, it does. It does resonate in a particular way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have to, I have to ask you like, uh, you know, this is, this is, we're going to do our hillbilly elegy moment here, Ryan. Um, <laughs> you know, like I said, like I, I have family from a similar part of Virginia to where you're from, not too far away. Uh, I spent, I spent a fair amount of time down there in Franklin County, uh, which I know you're familiar with and mm-hmm. you're from, first of all, I want to remind you remind me exactly where in the Blue Ridge you're from. And also just talk about like how, you know, how do you like, <laughs> what do you make of Lovecraft's whole deal, both in this story and elsewhere, his sort of classism and, and fears of like white degeneracy through the lens of our, our current discourse and your own experiences with like the way we talk about these supposedly, we don't use the word degenerate anymore, but we, mm-hmm. we, we imply it when we talk about so much of rural America. I mean, what do you, what do you make of all of that? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in, in Southwestern Virginia. Uh, I went to middle school and high school in, in a place called Allegheny County, right, right along the West Virginia, Virginia border. Um, so, you know, deep Appalachia, um, you know, close to, Pretty close to Franklin County, the what is it, the the moonshine capital of the world? They call it. Darn right. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, and you know one one thing that I always think about um, is the way that there are a lot of these sort of folk stories and family narratives among white rural Appalachians about um, intermarriage and blood blood kinship with indigenous tribes that had lived in the mountains, uh, you know, before. Europeans showed up. And there was almost for, for people from Appalachia, always this kind of sense of, of pride that you could say, like, I remember my grandfather saying like, you know, we've got Cherokee blood and, you know, there's no way to, I guess, I mean, I haven't taken the 23andMe test, but there's no way to kind of sort that out in the family history. But there, the sense, at least internally, was that it was kind of a mark of pride that you weren't entirely like pure European, that you kind of had something else in you. And that that clashes really strict, starkly with the way that that Lovecraft presents the idea of of whites intermarrying with you know non white races, um, but yeah, but certainly yeah, the way that I mean, I remember you know going to college and meeting people from other parts of Virginia, you know, like the the D.C. suburbs, for example, and and yeah, there's definitely a sense of you know you're from that part of the world that's not as civilized and not as, you know, sophisticated and well-articulated, um, you know, as, you know, I, I don't know, Fairfax or Richmond is. Right. So I think you're, you're, you're making a lot of really interesting points. And one of those is that like, on the one hand, we're all used to sort of like this discourse where, uh, you know, quote unquote, whatever you want to call them, coastal elites or whoever are, uh, sort of like denigrating, um, you know, rural Americans, uh, many white some not but just often it's mm-hmm. it's in our current discourse it's, it's, it's this conversation about the so-called rural white working class and blah right. blah the, blah the, all the, it, the, it, arch- the archetypal trump voters yeah it sort of devolves into caricatures very easily in our discourse as it did for lovecraft a century ago not, <laughs> right. not much has really changed actually um in certain ways but like w- what's interesting is that not only does that happen and we're also in a moment where like the coastal elite discourse is trying to ameliorate that within itself by sending David Brooks out into the, into the darkness of, uh, but that, but, but also that, um, on the other side of that, like anytime, you know, within America, all over the United States, people are always sort of, whether it doesn't have to be rural, but like people are always locating themselves in like a parochial way and building an identity around location, um, in a hyper-specific way. And that like, you know, in some way, Shadow over Innsmouth is like that taken to an extreme. It's like we're going mm-hmm. to so silo off our town from even the town like 15 miles away. And we're going to create this sort of 
our own supernatural ontological realm um, that's not even in communion with the rest. It's, it's like this extreme version of like the uh, this sort of parochial sense of self. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, uh, what did Freud call it? Like the narcissism of small differences. Um, yeah. I, I, I might be misquoting that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that always came to mind when I, you know, when I read Lovecraft stories about New England is that there's so much emphasis on the difference between towns that are ultimately like right over the river from each other. Um, you know, this, this sort of obsessive mapping of small regional differences yeah, and I, I always think about like so much of like the Western Massachusetts mountains that in Lovecraft are just are figured as like this wild frontier, you know, witch haunted, isolated, um, full of these like uh, strange pockets that are cut off from the world. I'm like, that's all now like second homes for people from Boston. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, one one writer who kind of comes to mind whenever I read Lovecraft is. Um, I think of like Nathaniel Hawthorne's short stories, especially like Young Goodman Brown, you know, about the, the, the woods and the wilderness just outside of civilization that, that contains all of these dark forces that are associated with indigenous tribes that live there and are in communicate, communication with forces, you know, beyond the European mind. Um, I, I don't know, you know, if Lovecraft read Hawthorne, I would assume, you know, he was well read that he probably had. Um, but again, like I, to kind of come back to what we talked about at the beginning about how we sort of place Lovecraft in, in literary history, I, I was kind of wondering like what you think, you know, in terms of like who he might've been influenced by and who he subsequently shaped, you know, after him. I know that's a big question. Yeah, I don't know that I have the best answer. Um, I, I, obviously Poe was his idol and someone mm-hmm. that he closely imitated. I think Hawthorne's a good pull. Um, and I looked up, by the way, I did look up like his, his history of movies and in a quick search, I, 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 I think he was, um, more influenced by, uh, his reading, um, mm-hmm. you know, people like Arthur Machen, there are some older, um, like proto horror writers. I really think that like, I think Hawthorne's a good pull because even though I'm not, um, I'm looking at, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page. Like he liked Jonathan Swift, um, mm-hmm. you know, but, but to go back to Hawthorne, like, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, famously Hawthorne was sort of like the first like famous, um, you know, respected American quote unquote literary writer who sort of helped shape our idea and the American tradition of what a, what a novelist uh, could and should be. And I, I think it's almost inevitable that Lovecraft must have been exposed. And I think, I think that, I think that Hawthorne's a good pull because you can set him next to Lovecraft. And in some ways Lovecraft is trying to sound as if he's writing in the exact time period that Hawthorne was writing, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. He has a very, you know, 19th century style of writing. It, he, he's, you know, doesn't sound like a lot of other modernist writers of, of his, of his time period. Right. And he's sort of letting himself like in this story in particular, it's set in the thirties, 1930s. And he's sort of letting himself look back to events that happened in the 1840s. And I feel like if you want to locate, locate Lovecraft, I would say like he sort of wishes he were working from the vantage of the last few years prior to the civil war. That's kind of, I think where he feels most intellectually and culturally at home. Um, but the Hawthorne thing you mentioned about like, the sense that pervades American literature um, of like, you know, you locate yourself wherever you do, wherever you want to, but then also like right around you or on that you're on always on the edge of like some massive space, some frontier. Right. Mm-hmm. And that frontier is like, it's, it's both seductive and tempting and, and it might promise certain good things to you, but it's also like 
dangerous. It's full of perils uh, that will that will rob your morality and your sanity and your Christianity. Um, and that that's sort of like you know in a in a sort of internally imperial uh, country, which is what we've been throughout much of our history and continue to be. Uh, that that is that's sort of one of the defining aspects of our literature set against like um, you know the British tradition, for instance. And that is this is a great example. This is one of Lovecraft's better contributions to that. I would say, is that fair? Yeah, I think so. And and you know, it's just to kind of build off of your point about the idea of the the sort of the frontier and the kind of more than rational realm that that kind of. European white culture is always bumping up against an American lit. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a truism of literary history that one of the genres that American writers excel at is the Gothic and Lovecraft is, is such a, a Gothic writer in the sense that he, there's this underlying theme of darkness and irrationality and mad uncivilized forces kind of just below the surface of polite society. Um, you know, in his case, in, in the place that's kind of the, you know, the, the oldest part of America, New England, that's, you know, it's been there longer than much of the rest of the country. I mean, I, I know in relative terms, it, it's barely a blip, but, um, but yeah, I mean, he's, that's one place I would locate him is in the kind of Gothic tradition. And I know that's not just American, but it's, he very much feels most American to me when I think about that. Yeah. I, I think that's, yeah, so to locate him in kind of the American New England Gothic tradition is probably kind of answers our question of like, if we want to put him in the American literary canon and use the typical terminology of the canon, that's probably where we we drop him in as one of the leading practitioners yeah. of it, I would say. Um, yeah, I think I think we're getting to a good point. To, I mean, we could keep talking about this, but I think we're getting to a good point to kind of close the chapter on Shadow Over Innsmouth. I'm going to ask you now. A, if there's anything you want to add about this story that we haven't gotten to, and then B, if there's anything you want to plug or promote about your own work. Uh, no, I guess I guess we just about covered it. I mean, this um, if, if anything, you're thinking about who he's influenced. Uh, this made me want to go back and reread Stephen King stories, like you know, the, what I think is the best vampire novel ever written, uh, <laughs> Salem's Lot. Uh, Salem's yeah. Lot. Um, you know, because King was so, you know, is so openly indebted to, to Lovecraft. And, you know, obviously he's, he's more than that. And I would argue he's a better writer than Lovecraft in, in a lot of ways. But um, yeah, it kind of makes me want to go back and, and read those Stephen King novels about, uh, what is it, Castle Rock is the town in Maine where the stories keep taking place, or a lot of them do. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're more of a king head than I am, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's you know, I, it's one of those writers I kind of have a guilty conscience about, you know, having been trained in, you know, capital S serious literature. And, you know, I still have this, this love for this guy who's pulpier and more popular. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, in terms of plugging my own stuff, um, you can find my book reviews at the LA Review of Books. I write a lot about higher education and critical university studies. Um, and I tend to publish stuff, you know, when I can, I, I have a pretty heavy teaching load, but every few months I put something out. So, uh, yeah, you can just, uh, head over to LARB and find some of my stuff. None of it's about Lovecraft though. I, I need to pitch, <laughs> I need to pitch an essay about Lovecraft now. Yeah, definitely check out Ryan's book reviews in the LA review of books. That's Ryan Boyd, LA review of books. Check him out. Um, he's a very good writer, a very, I think gentle and elegiac critic. Uh, and especially like you said, you've done some really great stuff on our current debates about higher education. So um, also follow Ryan on Twitter at Ryan Boyd. 
at Ryan Ryan, Ryan A Boyd. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those. I'm one of those lunatics who tweets under his own name. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that personally. Um, hey man, this has been great. We're gonna have to get you back on the show so we can make fun of you some more. No, that was that. That was great. Thanks, dude. Yeah, that was wonderful, man. I really enjoyed talking about this. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone. All right. Take care.